Well, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. Rajesh Naik and Dr. Justin Gallivan to discuss AFRL's Biotech Grand Challenge, Microbes, and How to Make the Perfect Cup of Coffee. In three, two, one... Dr. Nike, welcome back to the podcast. And Dr. Gallivan, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Thank you. Thank you. We thought we'd kick off this episode talking about coffee for a little bit. Is everyone well ca- caffeinated? What, do you, what are you drinking today? Unfortunately, I'm not drinking my coffee today. I'm an espresso in the morning. Now I'm having just Indian tea. So chai tea, as we it call sounds it. Sounds good. <laughs> I've got sparkling water. I've reached the age where you just, I can drink coffee in the morning, but can't really stay caffeinated throughout the day, unfortunately. Yeah, but Justin, you're a connoisseur of coffee, aren't you? Yeah, I drink the good stuff. I mean, (laughs) life is too short to be wasting, wasting time on bad coffee. What was the contraption you showed us one time on a meeting, how you can actually make some really great coffee? What was that? Uh, well, I have several um, contraptions at home. Probably the most elaborate is a siphon, which um, involves heating water in a vessel until it boils and the steam forces the water up into an upper chamber of that vessel where you add the coffee and the coffee brews for a set period of time. And then the, the brewed coffee goes back down through the filter into the original vessel. It's a little hard to describe in words, but it's really cool to watch. (laughs) Um, And it's it's elaborate and fun to look at, but most days I just do a pour over with a a Chemex. It's a little uh, uh, fancier than uh, my uh, old percolator that I have at the house with some Highlander Grog though. That's my favorite. I'd have a little flavor with my coffee. Well, definitely better than a Keurig. I was just wondering then, like in terms of this device that you had, where did you hear about this or where did you get that idea? Is there like a, a great like coffee connoisseur club we should know about? Ah, um, so I actually used to be a professor of chemistry at Emory University in Atlanta and not too far from my office was a wonderful coffee shop. So an independent coffee shop where the baristas there were really terrific. I got to be good friends with them and learn a lot about, you know, the science behind coffee as well as just, um, you know, sort of the usual things about brewing it, but we really learned about where coffee originates from, what makes good quality coffee, what are some of the factors that are important if you're going to prepare a good cup. And you'd be amazed at how well you can coax certain flavors out of coffee. For instance, I used to feel it was necessary to drink coffee with milk, and it was just because it was so sensitive, so bitter. But when I learned how to make coffee correctly, I learned that I didn't actually need the milk. So I actually drink coffee black now. But every once in a while, I will go with a a cappuccino or a cortado, actually, is uh, more my speed. Well, I know what whatever Ken drinks, he usually needs a lot of sugar throughout his day. So that might be his feed too. But you touched on something like origin of coffee. And in a different life, before you were a senior scientist in our uh, human performance wing, you were a program manager at DARPA. And you had research related to tracking where coffee beans originated based on microbes on the surface, I assume, of the coffee beans. What What's that about? <laughs> Well, that's correct. So, so the goal, of course, wasn't specifically 
um, coffee, although it provided a really good use case. So the problem that we're interested in addressing is determining the origin of particular items. And it turns out that both you and me and everybody that's listening to this is covered in microbes, mostly bacteria, many viruses, many of which are innocuous. So <laughs> we're not thinking COVID today. Um, but the, those microbes imprint upon us and they differ in different environments. And it turns out that with the advent of high throughput DNA sequencing, we can essentially gather up the DNA from all of the microbes that are on a surface. We can run it through a DNA sequencer and we can essentially identify what types of microbes that they are. And because the microbial burden is different in different communities, there are differences. And it turns out that those can reflect geography. So for instance, if I were to take an object that I had found in San Francisco and I were to swab it, sequence the DNA, I would be able to start getting a picture of what objects in the San Francisco area look like. Whereas if I took an object that I picked up here in Dayton, it would have its own microbial signature. And it turns out that the those signatures have not just a specific location, but also a regionality. So some the microbes that thrive, say in South Carolina, look more like the ones that thrive in North Carolina than those that are exist in Hawaii. So you can start building, using DNA sequencing, a map of the world. And then if you receive objects that have traveled through a certain part of the world, um, you can often identify not only where they came from, but also the places that they uh, transited through to get to you. Now, why does this? why is this of interest in the coffee industry? Well, one of the things that is important in a lot of contexts is validating a supply chain. So if we want to know, did something come from where a vendor says it did, you know, is a part original? One way to do that would be to sample the microbes in the the known factory where we think it should have come from, and then subsequently sample the products when it comes to us. And we can determine whether or not it came from a legitimate source. And obviously, this is a huge problem, not just within the Department of Defense, but also within business in general. For instance, if you buy something that you believe is being made in a particular factory, you don't want to find out that it is being made by slave labor in a different part of the world. And this type of technology can uh, provide some insight into that. Now, the interesting thing about coffee as a test case is that there's purchasers will pay a premium for coffee that comes from a particular location, often even just a single farm. So if you want to validate whether something came from a single farm and that farm is not only the one that says they're sending it, but it's that part of the world. It's the ground truth, correct thing, as opposed to something that came from someplace completely different, different part of the world, or 
blends of beans, some of which might be of high quality, some of which are less quality. So you're not actually getting the real, you know, sort of the real deal. And the microbial signatures are really good. So, so we work with some partners within industry to sort of determine whether or not this technology could be used to determine the provenance of, of objects. And it turns out it actually works pretty well. And it, again, all comes back to this idea that we and everything around us are covered in microbes. From what it sounds like then, like you said that there's such an accurate telling of where objects come from. Is there like a map that you guys reference then? Something like the microbes of the world that we could have in classrooms to know where certain objects may come from? So it turns out, yeah, um, the, the, the challenge there, of course, is sampling, right? So the, in order to get that map, you have to physically go to those places. Now, if you're making a block by block map of the city of San Francisco, you know, that's much more straightforward than trying to map the entire universe. So in cases where you can't map the entire universe, one of the things that you can ask is, did two things come from the same place? So even if I don't know where they came from, I can say that they likely came from the same place. So if I have an authentic sample that came to me that I know to be authentic, and then I receive a second sample, I can determine whether or not those likely came from the same spot, even if I don't know what the original spot was. And I'm, I'm just imagining the next time I turn on CSI that someone's just going to have a micro map, micro map and like try to pin the killer that they were definitely in this location because I don't know, something's in their shoe or their gloves or something like that. Is that, can that happen? Yeah. Yeah. So there are actually, as, as you know, we, we do DNA testing, fiber testing all the time, you know, recognizing that a hair sample is there and there's absolutely no technical reason why, the presence of certain microbes can't be used in a similar way. As with any of those tests, there's a confidence level, right? That we can say there's a one in a million chance that this this person did it or a one in seven billion chance. And, you know, I think the science is at a stage now where we're still working through that. Of course, you know, there are attendant legal issues that are outside of my bailiwick. (laughs) But I suspect that because the technology is becoming ubiquitous, the cost is going down, that it's going to be part of the armament for law enforcement. And I think, Justin, I think you hit the nail on the head. The cost of doing the sequencing and the analytics, you know, uh, becoming more mainstream, more manageable in terms of cost and expertise. Uh, a lot of the system, a lot of the systems are becoming very automated. Now more people are getting into it, right? Just not the the highly educated, you know, molecular biologist or bioinformaticist. It's it's becoming more democratic, where you have more people getting into this. Which so it's it's a great thing, and that's why I think. The Air Force is interested in this as well because we could use some of that those processes to do provenance of uh, of things that we are interested in, provenance of things that we're interested in within within the DoD. It could be electronic components, it could be other things. Uh, because as you were saying, uh, going back to coffee example, right, the beans coming from all these different parts of the world, you can trace it back, so you can. You can figure out the authenticity of of uh, of the material, so you have supply chain integrity and security built in using some of this tool. So, so it sounds like from what you're saying, Doctor Knight, that a major evolution in this is not only really us getting out there, but it's going to be the cost effectiveness of this. So, in the future, once you said it's more accessible to people, like this could really change to a much larger uh, enterprise for people. 
right absolutely and, and you, you're seeing a lot of diys and other things in sort of the synthetic biology area happening because of the cost being driven down right uh, and people do this in your in your 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 garages and basements now uh, you can buy a small device, you know, from from companies that look almost as small as yourself, and that can do sequencing for for a couple thousand bucks. Yeah, maybe it's not high quality, but at least it's a start, right? And so, to put that in perspective, when I was a graduate student an awful long time ago, if we wanted to sequence three hundred base pairs of DNA, that would cost about seven dollars, and now we're getting. You know the possibility of whole genome sequences of humans for, you know, under a thousand dollars, and the co- and the costs keep going down. So we're talking, you know, three hundred bases for seven dollars versus three billion bases for about a thousand. So if you do the math, the, the the cost reduction is incredible. And something we'd like to do then, like now that we have a good idea of like what microbes could be capable of, at least in a sequencing scale. Can you kind of describe to our audience who may not be as familiar just what they are? So uh, microbes are essentially anything that's small and of (laughs) biological origin. So viruses are technically microbes, but today we're just going to focus primarily on bacteria. So bacteria are small in the sense that we can't see them with our eyes. But if you look under a, a relatively inexpensive microscope, you can see bacteria. So they're about a thousandth of a millimeter across. So small, but not super small. So, (laughs) you know, size is a, 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 you know, is relative, you know, to an astrophysicist versus a a biologist. (laughs) No, and that's a great point. And that's something like we wanted to ask as well, because I know a lot of people hear microbes that can spark a lot of different ideas. And uh, I assume the ones you're working with then are like anything that's not too dangerous or does that kind of just depend on the nature of the work? Yeah. So, so microbes get a bad rap because when we think about, you know, sort of in the public vernacular, we think, oh, I got E. coli poisoning or salmonella or something like that. But the vast majority of microbes have evolved along with us for, you know, thousands of years. So, and they, they coexist. So they, they, you know, on our skin, they're there. Even if you wipe with soap, they come back within our guts. The microbes help digest your food so they can break down um, some of the more complex things that we eat into smaller uh, components that can get absorbed by our body. It turns out that there are lots of interactions with the microbes that live in your gut and your immune system. And it turns out that your gut actually uh, has lots and lots of synapses, connections to your brain. So there's something called the gut-brain axis. So when you think about your gut feelings, that actually is, you know, more than just uh, an expression. Um, what goes on in, in in your gut can actually have an impact on, you know, on your mood, for example. So then if you, you know, take it a step further, that if you have a gut-brain axis and that the microbes are interacting with the gut, there are hypotheses out there that suggest that the microbes that live in you can actually uh, affect things like your mood, for example. So you're saying when I eat chocolate cake, that the microbes in the chocolate cake do actually just make me feel better because of the brain uh, gut axis. (laughs) 
Uh, well, it may not, chocolate cake. <laughs> there's lots of other things that are good in chocolate cake that you're probably detecting. But, you know, there are compounds in chocolate like theobromine, which is going back to the original story. That's uh, actually a very similar structure to caffeine. And that's one of the things that you, you find in dark chocolate that has been implicated in antioxidant properties and some of the reasons that it's good for you. So, well, eat if more you guys. Chocolate. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll take that uh, take that as an order. But if you guys have any studies you need volunteers for studying the microbes and other forms of dark 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 chocolate, let me know. But a lot of our talk today, we we've kicked it off with talking about microbes and, and coffee, but we want to dive into biotechnology. Uh, what is that field of study? Oh well, that is in, incredibly vast. So maybe I can break things down a little bit. So um, maybe in some of the contexts that we're interested in, it turns out that the, the microbes, uh, microbes are incredibly useful. And we've known that for thousands of years, even if we didn't know the scientific explanation. So yeast are microbes. And if you want to bake bread or brew beer, that's using the action of microbes to convert sugars into carbon dioxide, which gives you foaminess, and it produces alcohol as a byproduct. So both obviously in brewing beer, we prize the alcohol component, but if you bake bread, you prize the the rise that you get on the bread. And there is a little bit of alcohol produced in the, pro in the process, but uh, since we don't use quite as much sugar, that amount is low and it gets baked away. I actually have right now, uh, proofing in my oven is, uh, is sourdough bread. So <laughs> I got into that during the pandemic, but there's another example where you have wild yeasts and bacteria that are fermenting products and imparting new flavors because of the compounds they produce. Now, on an industrial scale, we use microbes to produce all sorts of things. So antibiotics are paradoxically or sort of curiously produced by microbes. So oftentimes antibiotics are the product of that one bacterium uses to fight against another bacterium. So we ask the one that produces it to produce it for us. We scale that up in a big vat and we can isolate antibiotics. So in general, biology is an amazing technology, right? So you can take, you know, something encoded within the you know, within DNA, which is built of A's, T's, G's, and C's. Those are the basis in DNA, which you can start thinking about as being equivalent to ones and zeros that we use to write computer code. So what we've been able to get very good at over the last several decades, but it's really um, coming into its own now, is that, as we talked about earlier, we can read DNA through sequencing, and we can also write it. So that is to say, we can go to our keyboard and say, I would like to produce this particular sequence of DNA, and then often using a robotic system, you can actually produce that. So you're really starting to... Um, essentially hack the operating system of organisms. So that opens up a huge amount of possibilities. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, going back to, you know, biology being becoming a, a technology, you can see sort of the, the booming biotechnology across the globe, right? Industries are popping up, open any magazine today, uh, you will see some reference uh, biotechnology, right? Whether it's artificial meats, how do you develop sustainable, 
processes for leather, for example. Now they're making artificial leather using, you know, a biosynthetic-based approach or a synthetic biology approach. Um, so lots of fascinating things that's happening, uh, I think, in, in, in the biotechnology space. But more importantly is how do you bring this back to a, to a military utility, right? That's why we are here, right? All the cool stuff that's going on on, on the civilian-facing side, uh, but you also have, I think, here an opportunity to really influence, I think, military you know, needs, right? There's some gaps, uh, the opportunities to come up with new ways to build materials, uh, the opportunities to enhance the physical and cognitive resilience of our warfighters. Uh, there could be ways to make precursor materials, biofuels for maybe the future hypersonic vehicle or something of that sort. I think it all be in, in, enabled by biotechnology. Because what, I, what, what biotechnology is an enabler, right? It's not a product by itself, but it's an enabler that allows you to develop, you know, a product uh, that can be then introduced into a commercial uh, application or a, or a military application. And that's why recently we just had three grand challenges that was awarded uh, to the external community, uh, looking to see our industrial partners from 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 the U.S. Uh, as well as internationally to solve some of our, our, our problems and mature to a higher tier level. Uh, you know, we within the lab have done some initial technology demonstrations uh, with, with some of these approaches, but now we need to have industrial, the robust industrial support that we need to now mature that technology so it can make a product that then the Air Force can can into its inventory right so those those three three new biotechnology challenges that AFR sponsored is exactly doing that is maturing some of those observations that we've done in the lab now really maturing that technology to create a product that would would, would enable or provide some game-changing capabilities for the department of defense and for the air force yeah and and for our listeners when you say to a higher trl level you're not saying total request live with Carson Daly. You're saying technical readiness level. That's right. I don't know. I don't know what the other thing means, uh, Michelle, but yes, it's this oh, is very so, generational. Yeah. Hopefully some of our listeners understand. I mean, I didn't even have cable as a child, but I TRL means something else different to me, but going on there. So back to the actual, you know, podcast, then, uh, when we're talking that there are different focus areas in our biotechnology grand challenge, uh, what are the focus areas this year? So uh, this year, the, the, in the grand challenge, there are three areas that we've identified. One is building materials for uh, high, ten- high temperature resins, so precursor materials for high temperature resins. There's some unique challenges there that synthetic biology uh, can address, so that's one. The second area is uh, in the area of biofuels, right? Because if you want high energy density fuels, there's some challenges with existing processes. And there is a way to develop some precursor molecules that exhibit some unique properties using synthetic biology approaches, right? That, is, that could be much more cost effective than using conventional methods. And the third one is on, on engineering the, the gut microbiome to enhance physical resiliency. So how can we improve physical and cognitive performance in warfighters by engineering microbiome? So maybe sometime in the future, you can go buy a probiotic that you buy currently in the grocery store, maybe, and you drink it before a mission. So it provides you with additional uh, physical and cognitive protection 
in our operational environment. So those are some of the three areas that we're focusing on this time around. So I know hearkening back to the last podcast we spoke with you with, Dr. Nike, um, would this other probiotic option maybe be fighting hangovers for your, uh, you know, in the gut biome? I think you can buy that, right, Justin? I think there is a company that claims that they can cure hangovers. I I was at a meeting in, in San Francisco where there's a lot of folks that are into nootropics and these, you know, trying to improve your own performance. And these guys swore by it. They were handing out samples saying it works. Um, I generally avoid taking biological samples that some random dude hands to me. (laughs) That's a safe bet. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, So... uh, But yes, there there is the possibility. Um, And there it is... It certainly is within the realm of the possible. So, you know, here's an observation that sometimes people have different response, individuals have different responses to the pharmaceuticals they take. And it can in part be due to the fact that if the microbes in your gut are helping process those or degrading them, if you have a set that breaks down something more quickly than mine, I'll get a higher dose, effective dose of the drug because your body has broken it down more. And this is something that we didn't even appreciate years ago. I mean, this, you know, these microbes have lived with us, you know, we've co-evolved as, as humans to have them around. Um, so people that eat Western diet have different microbial profiles than those that eat, um, uh, you know, different kinds of diets. But in general, we didn't appreciate the the scale to which these microbes were there because we couldn't look. And DNA sequencing, as we talked about earlier, really provides that window into figuring out who's there. Now, I think one of the big questions is, well, what are they doing? And that's uh, part of current research. Something I kind of remember from our conversation was that one of you said that Obviously, there's ethics around changing a, a human's DNA, but we could we can mess with the stuff that's on us is a, is something that we can do with microbes. That, that's correct. So um, you know, we as part of you know, Department of Defense policy and many others throughout the United States that we won't edit a human genome and, and certainly not for non-therapeutic purposes. So we're not going to create superheroes. Um, and th- even though we, 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 we like to, it is, it is, a, you know, we're not there yet and it's a bad idea. That said, um, you know, these microbes that are um, living on us, we could imagine endowing them with some extra capabilities. So for example, could I have the microbes that are on my skin if they were to come in contact with something that was a, you know, so an agent that I want to detect, so, you know, some, something bad, and all of a sudden I start feeling a, a tingling or I see a color change, or better yet, what if those microbes could recognize chemical agents and break them down? So providing essentially a second skin or a form of biological armor, and. It, you know, all of this is within the realm of the possible. And then the advantage is it's fully reversible. So, you know, you can just wash with soap or take, take, you know, uh, uh, you know, scrub everything off and it doesn't actually have any permanent effects. But if you're imagining offering some protection over a period of time for an airman on a mission, it provides a, a particularly interesting potential solution. 
And that's, I'm just trying to get my head around that because the capabilities are just, it's awesome. Like to think about um, like just what we could be capable of. I know we had talked about, I mean, kind of diving into what you said there from like early detection on your skin. It almost sounds like, uh, you know, Frodo with Sting in Lord of the Rings. Like it glows blue when there's danger, like orcs yeah. nearby. Uh, and that, that that's so cool. Like, so other capabilities then, like you said, there could be armor, for instance, or is there a way to like detect radiation? Or is there like really, what are the limits to this, uh, at least as of what we understand right now? And, and I think that's 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 a potential, right? There's, there's some studies that have shown that, you know, you could develop, you know, microbes that are living materials, right, that can detect uh, different things uh, in the environment. It could be in your skin. It could be on a wall of a building. It could be on, on, on one of our, you know, aircrafts or UAVs. So think about it going through a plume of things and it gets activated and you might be, it could be an artificial skin. In fact, there was a recent article that just came out, um, on kombucha, you know the the tea that you got buy in in uh, in in grocery store, you know it's it's the it's a fermented product, and I think correct me if I'm not wrong, uh, Justin, it's actually a cellulose. I think that's made by 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 the microbes in there, but they use that process as a way to embed within that that film that's made, that map that's made out of cellulose cells that can respond to uh, a chemical pollutant, so it will change color. Uh, when there's some nasty chemical in the environment, right? So you could think of that as if you apply that onto, it, bring that into our environments, maybe now where if it's a, it's a, it's a nasty chemical uh, that is released, maybe it, it lights up. Uh, so you really don't have to put people in harm's way. You don't have to send your assets in. You just have a living material that will sense it and it will provide a signal that you can detect through very standoff, uh, approaches. Now, yeah, there, there might be some sensors that you can get through electronic processes, but I think what biology gives you, it gives an additional dimension that maybe a, 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 a electronic-based sensor cannot give you. And the ability to, for it to stand and survive extended periods of time, be truly a living material, I think that is what's unique and I think exciting. Yeah, this is the 21st century version of canaries in the coal mine. Coal mine, right? yeah. yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you talked about it beforehand, but you said a major way that um, warfighters, for instance, like kind of tying this back to the Air Force, let's say like uh, the idea that we do have these uh, microbes on the skin that could you detect or uh, help you in the environment. Would this be topical then, like something you'd put on or like you said something you, you would take instead for the gut biome? Like, um, or I guess it really depends on the project. Exactly. So you could imagine... Um you know, something that you would just apply sort of the equivalent of uh, sunscreen, for example. And you can even imagine having microbes that are pro actively producing sunscreen, so you don't have to put it on. Now, you know, that's that's great for a variety of reasons. As somebody who I have Irish skin, so I, I burn a lot. It would be nice not to have to think about it. And if you think about our, our warfighters, they they have a lot of burden, right? They they have to, to remember to put the sunscreen on. You have to remember to carry it. That adds excess weight, something that, you know, maybe instead of carrying that sunscreen, you can carry an extra battery because you have more space and you've offloaded some of the burden. So not only just the, the burden of carrying something, but the cognitive burden of remembering, oh, you know, did I put this on? So if, if, if your skin is essentially, or the microbes on it are providing that capability that you don't have to think about it and it doesn't add any weight, that, that's you know, potentially very attractive. 
That's just thinking of some of those applications outside of the airmen. Um, what else could like uh, these microbes or these uh, like a lot of these technologies do for? Uh, can they do things for like aircraft or other technologic pieces? Or is this more centered around the airmen themselves? Right. I, I think you can think of you know what do microbes do in a gut or a skin or even a nasal cavity? So they provide some layer of protection. Right. They keep the bad actors away and sort of provides that perfect balance. Right. Uh, between. Uh, good health versus getting infected by uh, um, bad things. So think about if there's a way to engineer some of those things that can prevent maybe corrosion in, in our aircraft systems or protect our fuels from, from getting degraded. I think there's so many things you could think about as applications, right? And, and one of the other part is also, you know, the, the Air Force and some of the work that we do is in support of the aeromedical evac uh, mission for the DOD, right? You can think of maybe there might be smart bandages where, you know, you can come up with that might have some of this synthetically, biologically synthesized materials or could be an engineered microbe uh, that can release uh, compounds uh, in response to given stimuli to enhance wound healing or, or do all sorts of, of, of neat things. I think the, the possibly, possibilities are endless. Uh, I think you're going to see more and more of this on, on microbes being engineered to do lots of things and things that we might not even have thought of. I, I think it's going to be going to be possible in the future. Uh, that's been enabled by you know advances in just not DNA sequencing, but you know in under, understanding better pathways and how do things interact. I think the science is exploding uh, in that space. It's something where I kind of tie back to uh, what we were talking about earlier uh, with the future of what this looks like. Like you both mentioned, we're on the forefront of some really, really cool stuff and already diving into some very interesting topics. Um, what can we look forward to seeing, especially tying back to the grand challenge we have here? Maybe technologies they'll be working on that maybe you uh, know these challenges could be promoting or at least um, what they can kind of kickstart here through this year and beyond. I am really attracted by this idea that, you know, DNA is just a way to express information chemically and that we can now start programming it. So one of the projects that I worked on at DARPA was asking the question, can we program an organism to undergo a particular plan of development? So nature has shown this, right? I can take a tiny seed, I can plant it in the ground and I can get a tree. And although there's variation between the trees, you know, a particular species has the same size and shape, just like people, right? You know, we, we, we vary within some sort of limits, but all of us were programmed by a little bit of DNA from mom and a little bit of DNA from dad. Now you think about that tree, right? A lot of what we use trees for is we want to get dimensional lumber and it takes a long time to grow a tree. Um, and then we take this beautiful living thing and we that can take CO2 out of the air and release oxygen and we cut it down and we kiln dry it and we produce a, 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 you know, a two by four that is useful, but you know immediately is inert. It doesn't do anything other than take up space and bear loads, things like that. It's already on the path to degradation. So. What if I could program a plant cell to undergo development such that it grows to a particular size and shape? So instead of growing trees, I go two by fours. And what if those two by fours 
maintain some of the properties of the plant. So the ability to you know, heal itself, right? Just like a human, you know, we, if we get cut, we heal, we get a scar. You know, it would be great if you had materials that could do the same thing, that could repair themselves. And, you know, if you start thinking about that, you know, the amazing thing that biology, the amazing things that biology does and start asking, how can we harness that? And all of that is within the realm of possibility. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. This is not coming to store shelves um, this, you know, this Christmas season. You know, certainly you can write the problem down and say, these are things that what seemed like science fiction and have gone from the perhaps impossible to the merely improbable. And that's what, you know, we scientists do is, is try to, to explore the art of the possible and to, you know, bring them into the realm of the practical so that we can deliver solutions to the Air Force and the DOD. And I, and I think that that's that's key, right? Is this the, the possibilities are endless, but how how do you work on things that are most beneficial to the Department of Defense, right? And some of the challenges, um, certainly in human performance, in in materials, uh, and other aspects. Uh, I think there's a lot of potential for biotechnology, and as an enterprise within AFRL, you know, we are working. Uh, we have a large, we have a portfolio, uh, uh, what we call the biotechnology portfolio across AFRL, uh, where we're, you know, working across different TDs, including Air Force R, including industrial partners, international partners, other services on, on working on, on problems that are Air Force specific and have opportunities for us to leverage, you know, some of these advancements that you see, because some of the things that Justin has been talking about, a lot of those things are happening on the outside, not necessarily within the, the, the Department of Defense fences. So we should be we should be able to, you know, reach out, leverage some of those advances and apply it towards more DOD Air Force centric problems. And that's what we're doing, right? We we are we are we are training our workforce. We're having you know smart buyers or practitioners of practitioners of, of you know of biology. But we have to figure out also at the same time, you know, how do I take some of this cool stuff and apply it to some of the most challenging problems within within the DOD. And we as a community have come together uh, around the space because this is one of the top priorities for the, for the Department of Defense. Uh, it's one of the modernization uh, priority area for the DOD uh, under the OSD modernization priority areas, biotech ranks as, as one of them. So again, it's an opportunity to develop some you know, unique uh, Air Force solutions. I think we have opportunities to do that and show uh, how biotechnology can provide a, a game-changing or paradigm-shifting capability for, for the Air Force. And the onus is on us uh, to do that. And I think we have a very strong workforce, a very smart workforce in the organization uh, that is capable of, of delivering on, on that ask. I think there's also several uh, press release articles that's open. If you go to our main website, uh, we just recently released one on the three challenges that provide some input. They can reach out, uh, and if our listeners are interested, reach out, and we'll be happy to have a conversation. Uh, maybe get some more chai tea and, and coffee because I have so many like crazy applications, and maybe it's just you know some of the science fiction Marvel movies I've watched and series that I'm just like, but hey, would would this work? You know, to make someone a superhuman superhuman or something like that. But anyway, I will close out our podcast 
trying to see how nerdy Dr. Gallivan is. We know he's super nerdy about coffee, but you said you were uh, making your own sourdough bread, right? Have you gone so far as start to grind your own yeast so that you can <coughs> with different types of yeast uh, from different fruits or whatever uh, in your bread? Um, I have not. Um, my brother and I are in sort of this competition where we um, keep going back in the process. And at some point I wonder, you know, am I going to have a, a, you know, patch of wheat growing in the backyard so I can go fully artisan? I don't think so. To tie it back to some of the microbes that are found naturally in the environment, there is, and I can tell this story because it's almost five o'clock and I'm going to go drink a Guinness. Um, but there's a story that, um, uh, that may be apocryphal, I don't know, where somebody had written to the, the head brewmaster at, at, at a brewery and asked for a sample of the yeast that they used to brew their beer, which was really good. And then they replied, this is you know long ago where you actually got a letter back um, instead of an email. And the story goes that the person was able to swab the letter isolate the yeasts that were floating around in the air of that uh, brewery and be able to, to brew that particular type of beverage. So I don't know if it's true, but it is a good story. And I think it, it's, it's certainly within the realm of the possibility. Judged by what we talked about today, that sounds like it's in the realm of possible at least. So that that's really cool. We want to thank you both so much for taking part. It's been such a pleasure and I'm sure we'll both speak to you again soon enough. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Great. Thank you both. Looking forward to it. Take care. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.